Good morning, everyone. Glad to have you here in-house, as well as those that are online. We're going to be wrapping up, in a sense, the armor of God today. We're going to be talking about the importance of taking up our sword, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And on my phone the other day, Steve Fegler sent me this text, and I wanted to show you a picture of this text for you to look at and think about a little bit. It shows you and display the armor of God. There it is. So as you look at that, maybe in your mind you're going, yeah, that's kind of how it feels right now. We just had this overload of information about all these pieces of armor, and this is kind of in my brain what it looks like right now. I've got all these pieces, and I'm trying to put them all together and trying to make some sense of this as Pastor Phil and I have been bringing this to you. I hope that it's been helpful. Um, and again, it's the idea of putting on these pieces of armor, trusting God in that process. The other day, I was talking with Ron Turntine after our Wednesday prayer time, and he said, Ken, I don't know if you know about this, but you've been talking about putting on the armor, starting with the belt, through the sword. And he says, in reality, you can also talk about the armor backwards. And I said, really, I've never heard of this. What do you mean by that? And so I said, tell me about this. And I jotted it down on a piece of paper. What do you mean by that? And he says, when you think about the process of coming to Christ, you really put it on backwards. And I go, okay, so I just scribbled this down, Ron. I hope this does justice, but it makes sense. Here it goes. So the idea is through the prayer and the word of God, the sword. Those are the last two pieces one comes to put on the helmet of salvation. They come to put their salvation, they come to know Christ through faith, the shield, right? Then, once they are in relationship with Christ, they go out with the gospel of peace, and they share the good news of Jesus Christ so that others can come to know him also. And then, in that process, others put on the breastplate of righteousness, they are righteous in God's eyes through Christ and ultimately come to know the truth, the real truth, the belt of truth. How's that? Was that fair? Okay. I thought, you know, that's interesting how we can really look at it in both ways. You know, Paul's been telling us as Christians, this is the way the armor would have been put on, a soldier. So as Christians, put it on like this, starting with the belt, all the way to the sword but we can look at it in the other way also. When we think about the stand, when we think about taking our stand against the devil's schemes, here's what I want you to hear. If you forget everything and all the armors, hear this. The, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. We don't fight to gain victory, we fight to maintain victory the victory we already have in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That's the story of Ephesians. Who we are in Christ Jesus is the most important thing. Once we know our position, we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Then, the next thing is, we walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling, of our position in Christ Jesus. Then, we know the battle's coming, we have an enemy, so we need to realize that and we need to take our stand. But it's taking our stand from a position of victory. 
We are victors in Christ Jesus. The image of the sword, just like all the other pieces of armor, come from God. And there are verses in the Old Testament that speak of this. So the sword of the Spirit, where does that come from? Isaiah 27, verse 1. And again, Paul, being a good Pharisee in his day, would have known the Old Testament much better than I, to be honest. And so he would have known this verse in Isaiah. Here it is. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword. Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. There's this image of God's sword that he gives to us. It's his pieces of armor. And then in the New Testament, it speaks of Christ having the sword. And in the book of Isaiah, there's five times where it mentions Jesus Christ with a double-edged sword. The first one is in Revelation 1.16. John is on the island of Patmos. He sees this incredible vision of Jesus. And part of his vision and what he sees is this. He says, in his, in Jesus' right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Chapter 2 of Revelation, when Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum, he says, I am the one with the double-edged sword. It's coming from Christ. And then in, at the end of the book, in chapter 19, the judgment, when Christ comes and when he brings judgment on the earth against those who do not believe, it speaks of him coming with a double-edged sword. So all these images are taken both from the Old Testament and from Christ himself. Romans 13, 14, Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. I mentioned this verse way back at the beginning. He says, put on the armor of light, not darkness, and clothe yourselves with him, Jesus. Jesus is our belt of truth. Jesus is our breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. He is the gospel. He is our shield of faith. He is our helmet of salvation. He is our sword, the word of God. He's it, isn't he? We're putting on Christ in a very real sense. So let's look at this sword today. It's the last official piece of armor that's listed here in Ephesians 6. So what would have the sword look like in Paul's day? What is he referring to? the sword for the soldier of that day. Well, a picture here may, might help you to see it and to visualize it in your mind what this sword might look like. It's called the makara. It's a short six to 18 inch blade that would have been carried by the soldier of Roman days looking something like this. I, I Googled this image and there were a lot of different variants but they all kind of looked pretty similar to this. Again, it was used in this close hand-to-hand -hand combat. It would be held with one hand, not two, like a broadsword that one would swing wildly with the long blade because in the other hand would be the shield of faith. With, I'm right-handed, so I would have my sword in my right hand, the shield in my left, right? And you're out there holding this shield up with one hand, you got the sword in the other. You don't have both hands on the sword, in a sense. It would be attached to the belt, the belt of truth, the scabbard, 
in the side, attached. It's always with the soldier. He has his sword with him at all times. How is it used? Well, the short sword would be used, again, in this close combat. It would be thrusting and jabbing more than these wild, broad swings with the broadsword that you might have in your mind. It would need to be smaller to wield it about quickly, more agility, that sort of a thing. And a sword, the reason that it's different and special probably from all the other pieces of armor is that the sword is the one piece that's really can be both defensive and mostly offensive in nature. It's a weapon that God has given to each one of us to be used in this battle, in this spiritual warfare. All the other pieces are defensive in nature. This one is very much offensive in nature. So armor is necessary, and we need the armor of God, but he hasn't left us without a weapon to use in the spiritual battle also. Now, we as Christian soldiers, how do we use this sword? How can we use this offensive weapon that God has given to us? Well, it tells us, first of all, that this is a sword of the Spirit. That's significant. The reason being, there's a few reasons. Number one, we're fighting a spiritual battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We learned that in verse 12 here of chapter 6, right? We're battling against Satan and his schemes. We can't see it. So it needs to be a spiritual sword. There's that story in the Gospels about Peter, and we all know that story in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the soldiers came to get Jesus, what happens? Peter grabs a sword, and he takes off the ear of Malchus, the the servant of the high priest. And what are Jesus' words to Peter in that moment? He says to Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Peter, This is not a physical battle here. Our enemies are not these soldiers, although it looks that way right now, and they're coming at us. The real enemy is Satan. There's spiritual battle here that's raging, Peter, and that physical sword will do no good. In fact, I love this story because Jesus reaches down on the ground. There's that ear sitting there all bloody, right? And I wish, you know, just imagining the picture of him picking that up in compassion and putting it back on the side of the man's head and healing his ear. How amazing is that? It just shows us the love of Christ, his compassion, the fact that he could in that moment bring about a a healing, a miracle. We can't separate the sword from the spirit. The spirit is the author of the word of God. Second Peter 1 verse 21 tells us this. It says, no prophecy had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We call this inspiration. It's the reality that all the words that we have in this great book are God-breathed. They come from God, and that the authors were carried along. They were inspired. They were moved by the Holy Spirit, in writing this book. It wasn't just their own words. It wasn't just their own thoughts here. It was the Holy Spirit. He's the author of the sword. 
He is also the illuminator. John 14, verse 26. This is Jesus in the upper room speaking to his disciples. He says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. He will remind you of everything I have said to you. He will help you understand it, and he will also help you remember it. He will help you bring it to mind if it's in your mind. I think the assumption here and our responsibility, the reality of this is we need to have it in our minds first, right? It's hard to learn something if we're not studying it, and it's hard to bring something to mind if we don't have it there. So there, it, the assumed thing is that we take part in this, but the Holy Spirit works alongside us. The Bible's a very unique book in so many ways, but if you think about it, it's unique here in a couple of ways. Number one, no other book has the author standing right beside you as you read it to help you understand it. Isn't that an amazing thought? The author of Scripture is right there with you as you read it to help you get it. And there's no other book where the author is there helping you do what the book has told you to do, empowering you, giving you the power and the grace to do what it asks you to do. The Bible is, is very unique in that sense. Since the Spirit gave us this sword, we need to depend on Him to use it. That's what it's saying, the sword of the Spirit. Unlike a sword, however, the physical sword, this sword has its own power. It has life in itself. Hebrews 4.12, you probably know this verse and have learned this since you were a child. It's a very powerful verse. It speaks of the power of this Word of God. It is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. The word by itself, as it goes out, as it's spoken, as it's read, is powerful, it's alive on its own to do these things. It can convict of sin, it can divide lie from truth because it gets right down to the very core of the matter. It can judge our very thoughts and intentions, it says. Boy, you know, when you read the word of God, we can fake it out here with people and we can get away with a lot of stuff, right? And we can be good at that, but the word of God gets down to the core of who we are, even down to the intentions and to the very thoughts that are in my heart. So this sword is alive, it's powerful, it's active. It's unlike any physical sword out there. It's the sword of the Spirit, that's why. But it's also connected, it's the Word of God. It's His Word. Now, in the Greek words, in, as we read the New Testament, there's two words that are used, Greek words that are used for the word, word. How's that for confusing y'all? The English word. The first one is logos. Logos. You can pronounce it different ways. Logos. This is not logos here. By that, it's all of God's word, the scriptures. That's what logos means. It's the written word. It's also the living word. John 1. In the beginning was the logos. 
in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, Jesus. He is the Logos. He is the living Word of God, the written Word of God. This is the spoken Word of God. This is literally an utterance, a verse, a passage, a truth of God's Word that comes to my mind in a moment, that comes to my mind when I need it. That's what it's talking about here with this sword. I'm facing a temptation. I'm dealing with a doubt. I'm struggling. I need the word of God in that moment to speak to my heart, to stand up, and to jab back. That's what it's talking about here. The word there is rima. That's the Greek word in this particular situation. The Holy Spirit equips us with the right thrust of the sword at the right time. That's what it's talking about. So I'm not swinging the whole word of God here. I'm, I've got a truth of God that's coming from his word in the moment that I need it. And that's what it's talking about. I got a text from a friend just the other day, and, and we've been texting back and forth, and he's, he's in a struggle right now in his marriage. And he texted me a verse out of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 and 8. And it just says this, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And he just told me, I've been struggling today with loving my wife, and then this verse popped into my mind. And I see it as the thrust. I see it as the sword, as the word of God in the moment. Speaking to him and saying, that's what love really is here. It's not easy. It's going to be difficult at times. But this is love according to God. This is godly love in the moment. And I love how God does that for us. We are to take up the sword. Just like the helmet last week, Dekamai, that word, take it up, put it to use. It's there, but don't leave it on the floor. Don't leave it at home. Don't forget it. We need to be putting it into use. In their day, the sword was their weapon of choice. In modern warfare, it's the rifle. It's the gun that is the offensive weapon of choice. And there's nobody like a Marine to know that this is true. And Mike Wisman is here today, and I know he's wearing his mask. He's a, he's a Marine, and Marines are a unique bunch. Are they not, Mike? Is that fair to say? I mean, there's all of the different, you know, there's, there's the Army. They're great. The, you know, the Air Force, the Navy people, Coast Guard. But Marines are unique. And one of the things that makes them unique is, is just the whole way they look at their weapon. And so I read this interview from this Marine sergeant. I just wanted to give this to you. It says, there are gun lovers, then there are Marines. To a Marine inf infantryman like Sergeant Joshua Sherman, that's the gentleman being interviewed here, his weapon may mean the difference between success and failure, life and death. He says, in quotes, our weapon system is basically our tool to keep ourselves and our friends alive and then to do the job at hand. Marines refer to their rifle as she, the male Marines, like a girlfriend. 
when you push forward and you're actually in Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever the Marine Corps may send you, that weapon never leaves your side, Sergeant Sherman says. It never leaves your side. You, you use it, you practice with it, you're comfortable with it. That's the whole idea of taking up your sword, the word of God. We need to be comfortable with it because we're making our stand against our enemy. So how do we use our sword, the word of God, as believers? Well, I think Jesus gives us the best example that we can find, and it's gonna be taken from the story of his temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter four, and I just wanted to read Matthew four verses one through 11 to you, and then kind of look at how Jesus dealt with his enemy. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. That goes without saying, right? The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Okay, sounds reasonable. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God. I love that, if. If you are, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, now Satan's gonna use scripture. This is Satan quoting scripture. He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Hmm. Jesus answered him, it is also written, with scripture, do not put your, the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. You see, in this passage of Scripture, what's interesting to me is that Jesus was tested, tempted, in the wilderness for his sake. First, he needed to be that great high priest that could sympathize with us in our temptations because he is tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. That's what Hebrews 4 tells us. He needed to be tried and tested. So part of the purpose was for him but also part of the purpose of his temptation, I believe, is for us. Because in those moments of temptation, Jesus didn't rely upon his divine nature. He relied upon scripture. He relied upon the word of God in each of those moments. Charles Spurgeon says, Outflashed the sword of the Spirit. Our Lord will fight with no other weapon. He could have spoken new revelations. But he chose to say, it is written. Hmm. Sword of the Spirit right here in that moment. He could have stood against Satan with a display of his own glory. He could have wiped Satan off the face of the earth in that moment, being God. He could have stood nose to nose with Satan and used logic and reason in the moment. And he could have outreasoned Satan. He's so much wiser and smarter. But he instead... 
he gives us the example of using the word of God in the moments of temptation against our greatest enemy, Satan. That is the example he wants us to see. All the verses, by the way, are quoted from one book in the Old Testament, and that book is the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy was basically a retelling of the history of Israel to the younger generation who had come out of, it, out of Egypt and wandered through the desert. They were preparing to enter the land, and Deuteronomy is just a retelling of God's faithfulness, the retelling of how God was with them throughout the wilderness to prepare them to go into the promised land. And I, it's, to me, it's fascinating that Jesus is basically saying, just like God was with his people Israel in the wilderness, God's with me in the wilderness. And he's retelling the story. And so he uses that great book of Deuteronomy all three times with all three temptations. So temptation number one, stones into bread. The idea there is, Jesus, you're hungry, Put your fleshly needs out in front of God's will and God's purpose and God's truth in your life. It's the same temptation that, this, that Satan uses with us. Hey, you have a need here. Put that out in front of what you know to be God's will in your life. It's okay. God will understand. Jesus, he'll understand you're hungry. 40 days. You've been fasting. But Jesus said no. Man shall not live by bread alone, right? But by every word, there it is, the word of God. I'm gonna stand on the word of God, not on what I need. Then temptation number two, throw yourself down from the temple and the angels will save you. And Satan uses Psalms, the book of Psalms, chapter 91. And he quotes a couple verses out of Psalms 91 there. He says, after all, it says in Psalms 91 that the angels will protect you, even if you dash your foot against a stone, Jesus. You know that. You know the Psalms. But what's interesting about Satan is he leaves out a piece. There's a sentence. If you go to Psalms 91 and compare the quote to what we have here in Matthew 4, there's a little sentence left out, and that's what Satan loves to do. Take the truth of God's word and tweak it. Or just take it a little bit out of context. And here is the the sentence that he leaves out, to guard you in all your ways. So the idea there is basically what he's saying is, Jesus, what you need to do is just step out of what you know to be God's will just for a moment and do it. After all, you're going to make a big splash here. People are going to love this show. Wow, what a way to announce that you're, on, you're here as the Messiah, I mean, jumping off the temple, right, and downtown, and the angels saving you. He knew that wasn't God's will, and so I love what Jesus does. He redirects and he goes, okay, yes, but you've misquoted Psalm 91, Satan. You've left out a very important part, which is that when you're following God's will, when you're walking according to the way that God has told you, then yes, there will be protection, in your life. That's what Psalm 91 is talking about. But when you step out of it, don't put God to the test and say, God, would you please perform a miracle here now and save me because I've chose to disobey you. That doesn't make sense. You're putting God to the test. The third one is temptation number three. The lust of the eyes. 
There was the lust of the flesh with the bread. Jesus was hungry. There was the pride of life. Man, throw yourself off the temple. People are going to love that. Appeal to his pride a little bit. This one's about the eyes, seeing that he took him to a place he could see the kingdoms of the world. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all that. Whoa. There's a couple things here that are wrong. Deuteronomy, again, he goes back to Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Let's get back to what the word says, Satan. And he jabs him with Deuteronomy for the third time. Satan wants to misdirect our worship. Same thing is true today as it's always been. Worship this rather than God. Worship me rather than him. But there's also this idea, I want to show you a shortcut here, Jesus. I want to give you, I want to give you the end without the means. I want to give you the joy without the pain. I want to give you the crown without the cross. If you just do what I say, you can avoid all that cross stuff and the pain and going through all that, and you can have what you want, right? This idea of shortcuts can be very tempting sometimes. Do we in our lives tempt and try to take shortcuts in our walk with God? Think about that. How do we do that? We do. We want to take these little shortcuts that might provide something we want now, and we can alleviate all this time and pain that we'll have to go through to get there, right? Patience. I want patience now. I don't want to go through all that other stuff, right? When the pioneers were coming across the Oregon Trail, um, history tells us there was moments where there was a well-worn trail, and they knew, they knew this trail, and you could follow it, and it was probably the best one. Lewis and Clark had actually made that early before the settlers started coming out here. And, but along the path, there were moments where in the moment maybe there was the thought of maybe if we take this shortcut, we can avoid some of the pain that's ahead or some of the difficulty that we're going to experience along the trail. There's a classic story. It's called the Hastings Cutoff. If you study history, you've probably heard of this. And there's a picture of this is probably somewhere in either Nevada or California. But there was a group of people that were on the Oregon Trail and they decided let's drop south and take this shortcut, this cutoff, into California to get there maybe a little bit quicker. And here's kind of the story of the Hastings Cutoff. In the summer of 1846, a party of 89 immigrants was making its way westward along the 2,100-mile-long Oregon Trail. 2,100-mile. Wow. Tired, hungry, trailing behind schedule, which was part of the, the package, right? They decided at Fort Bridger, Wyoming, to travel to their final destination of California by a shortcut. Now, there was a path that went south into California that people had been taking, and that was no problem, but they wanted to do it a little bit quicker. The Hastings Cutoff, they chose, was an alternate route that is named after Mr. Hastings. Lansford Hastings claimed he would shave off at least 300 miles of the journey. The party believed this detour could save more than a month's time. They were wrong. Hastings Cutoff turned out to be a waterless, wide-open stretch of the Great Salt Lake Desert, which happens to be there in Utah, right? 
bordered by sagebrush wilderness that began with having to forge their own wagon route through Emigrant Canyon in the Wasatch Mountains. By the time the party finally reached the Sierra Nevada Mountains, the shortcut had cost them valuable weeks. Snow fell, trapping the Donner Reed party. You know that story. This is when the most infamous and deadly part of their tale began. When members of the party began starving to death, survivors ate their remains to stay alive. That's exactly what happened to the Donner Reed party in 1846 when they found themselves traveling well behind other immigrants and decided to put their trust in Hastings. Hastings' motivation for the cutoff, this is important, was pure capitalism. With California part of Mexican territory at the time, Hastings saw huge potential in settling in the land and perhaps even making it an independent republic. He figured that if he could get people to come to his communities in the specific areas that he had mapped and created by cutting across the Great Basin and arriving into what is now the Sacramento area, that he might even become king of this new republic. Hmm. Does that sound a little bit like our story, the shortcut with Satan and Jesus? Satan wanted to be king of this republic, offering a shortcut which would have been sure death and disaster, Jesus sees through it, and he quotes the word of God in the moment. We effectively resist temptation in the same way Jesus did. We counter Satan's lies by shining the light of God's truth upon them. That's it. That's the sword. It's the word of God. So, how can we take up the sword of God? How does this apply to us today? We have this sword. It's available for us. Many of you are like me. We probably have a million of these sitting around, right? I do. I run across them all the time. I have different translations. I like different translations. We need to get into the Word of God. We need to love it. We need to get it in our hands. We need to memorize it. We need to study it. We need to get comfortable with it. When I was a young man, I, took a, I went through a wana at my church in Dilly when I was growing up as a kid. And I remember in Awana, and I also was involved in prep ministries at Dilly Elementary, at Dilly Bible Church. And I remember one of the things we did as kids, and maybe you remember this, sword drills. Do you remember sword drills, right? So here's what I want you to do. This is going to be kind of an interactive thing here. I want you to grab your Bible or a Bible near you if you have one, and I want you to hold it up, right? That's what we do with sword drills. So the way sword drills work is this. We draw, <laughs> some of you have phones. Okay, I, I get it, yeah. <laughs> I get it, yeah, yeah. Hey, it works. It's the word of God, right? Draw your swords, right? This is the way it starts. And so you can't have a finger, you can't even have a finger in here opening. You've got to have it, you know, by held, okay? Then the person up front will just say, give you a reference. Now, he might start off, he or she might start off easy. John 3.16, okay? So the minute you say, draw your swords, reference given, and then you say, charge, and then you have this, the sound. And the whole idea is the first person to, to get to John 3.16 stands up and they read John 3.16, right? So that, that's okay. Then the next time the guy goes, okay, swords up here. 
draw your swords. Then he goes, Habakkuk 3.15. So then there's this much longer period of rustling through the, and it's like, where's Habakkuk? What, you know, and that's a tough one, right? Because it's one of those little minor prophets in the Old Testament, and it just kind of gets lost in there with all the other minor prophets. But that's part of the idea of learning God's word, getting comfortable with it, knowing where the books of the Bible are, kind of in that order. And it's just kind of a fun way to get the Bible in our hands as a child and learn it, right? I want to take you through a, an exercise this morning. And again, go ahead and hold your Bibles up. And I want you to draw your swords, okay? And I'm going to give you a situation. Then I want, just in your mind, you don't have to do this, okay? But I want you to, in your mind, turn to a place that speaks to these situations, okay? So let me give you situation number one. You're sitting at your house, you hear a knock on the door. There are two members from the Jehovah's Witness Church at your door, and they tell you that Jesus is not God, he is a created being. Charge, okay? Now, what I want you to do is rifle through your Bible, in your mind, with your Bible, find a reference, a verse, a passage that speaks about the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that he's more than just a created being. Where would you go? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. I quoted this one earlier. You cheated. Okay, the Word was with God. The Word was God. Now, they take that verse and they mistranslate it. They put a in there. The Word was a God. Wrong. That's an incorrect translation of God's Word from the original languages. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. So that's a good one. John ten thirty. I and the Father are one. That's a good verse to have in there. I love Colossians when they come to my door. Chapter one and two, the supremacy of Christ is the theme of the book. Colossians 2.9 speaks about the fact that Jesus was literally God in the flesh. He was the fullness of deity in bodily form. That's what that verse says. Everything God is in bodily form. Fully God, fully man. That's a beautiful verse. Revelation 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's a good one, Revelation 1.18. So there's passages that you can take them to, okay? So situation number two, draw your swords, okay? Again, in your mind. Here's the situation. You have a coworker at work who just one day is thinking about it and asks you, how can I get to heaven? Where would you take them in the word of God. What would be your verse? Give me one. I hear 316, John, 316. Romans, okay. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Those are all good. Acts 4, 12, there's no other name under heaven, Paul says, or Peter, actually. Acts 4, 12, whereby you must be saved. Romans 6.23, wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that. That's a beautiful verse for the gospel, all in one succinct, beautiful verse. Okay, so situation number two, draw your swords, okay? So now, this is you. This isn't a coworker. This isn't a cult member on your doorstep. This is you, and you're struggling with a doubt. And the doubt has to do with your assurance of salvation. 
and Satan's attacking you and saying, hey, you can't really be a Christian. I mean, look at you. Look at you. Look at what you're doing right now. Look at, I, come on, really? The way that you're acting, how can you be sure that you really are saved? Okay, charge with that one. And what do you got for me on that one? Okay, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved. Not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not by works. John, okay, as many as believe on his name. Yeah, John 1, 12, great verse, great verse. John 5, 24 was a verse I, that I love. It just, Jesus is speaking about, if you believe in me, you've crossed from death into life. What a beautiful illustration, and I love the word cross in it. You've crossed, how? Because it, it really asks, it answers the question of how. The cross. You've crossed from death into life. It's regeneration that Pastor Phil spoke of last week. Rebirth, renewing. I love John 10, 27, 29. No one can pluck them out of my hand and no one can take them out of my father's hand. They are mine, my sheep, Jesus says. Oh boy, that's some assurance of salvation. If Jesus says that, who am I to doubt it and who is Satan to tell me it's not true, right? I found a verse that I want to think about also. We can take up the sword by getting to know the word of God and just loving it, learning how to use it, memorizing it, practicing it. But we can also take up the sword when we praise God. Psalms 149, verse six. Look what this verse says. May the praise of God be in their mouths and the double-edged sword in their hands. May the praise of God be in their mouths and this double-edged sword in our hands. Isn't that a beautiful picture? of praise we praise God with our mouth we speak words of praise about him and we have the the sword in our hands it's this idea of a singing army a beautiful illustration of that second chronicles chapter 20 Jehoshaphat they're the the army of Judah they're fighting a battle against the dreaded enemies the Moabites and the Ammonites Again, and God says to Jehoshaphat, he says, the battle is mine, not yours, Jehoshaphat. You will need to fight, but you're, you will not need to fight, but you will see victory. And he's like, how's that going to happen? So God instructs him, and he says, put your musicians out in front of your army. Put the choir out in front of a, in a military battle? Are you kidding me? And he obeyed, and guess what? The Moabites and the Ammonites were driven. I mean, they were just literally destroyed that day. They saw a great victory. The enemy was defeated, and what I love about that story is they went to the temple after the victory in battle with harps, lyres, trumpets, with the musical instruments, and they continued to praise. When we praise God, it's like a sword fighting off our enemy. When we're giving 
praise to Him, when we're putting our trust in Him, when we're leaning into God, the enemy has no chance in our lives. It works the same way as knowing His Word does. When out of our mouth is coming, praise to Him for all that He's done. I want to leave you with a story and a question in conclusion. The first is a story. H.P. Barker gives a graphic illustration that points up the need for both knowing and applying the Bible's truths. He says, as I looked out onto the garden one day, I saw three things. First, I saw a butterfly. The butterfly was beautiful. It would alight on a flower and then would flutter to another flower and then to another and only for a second or two, it would sit and it would move on. That's what butterflies do. It would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit from it. Then, I watched a little longer out my window, and there came a botanist. The botanist had a big notebook under his arm and a great big magnifying glass, kind of like what Jeff Galt had the other day up here. The, the botanist would lean over a certain flower. He would look for a long time. Then he would write down notes in his notebook. He was there for hours writing notes, closed them, st stuck it under his arm, tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket, and walked away. The third thing I noticed was a bee. Just a little bee. But the bee would light on a flower, and it would sink down deep into the flower and it would extract all the nectar and pollen that it could carry. It went in empty every time, and it came out full. Which one are you? Are you the butterfly? A little piece of scripture here and there, you know, moving around. Or are you more like the botanist? You write notes on the Bible, but kind of missing the big picture. Or are you like this bee that just settles down into this beautiful flower and spends time there and sucks out all the nectar it can possibly get. I want to encourage all of you to never go away empty from the Word of God. Never go away empty from the Word of God. Take it in. Soak it in. And finally, here's the question that I wanted to leave you with. This is just for you to apply as God prompts you. How can I... How can I immerse myself in his word, taking it all in? May God bless you today as you think about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen.